We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. My guest today is Dr. Tim Harita, who has been practicing family medicine in Southern California for 23 years. He graduated with honors from Dartmouth Medical School in 1997 after serving as chief resident at the Kaiser Woodland Hills Family Medicine Residency. He became a member of their faculty and later became program director. He continues to enjoy teaching medical students and residents and is an assistant clinical professor at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Currently, Dr. Harita practices in Oxnard, California with the Southern California Permanente Medical Group and in his community with the Westminster Free Clinic. His publications include several textbooks and a peer-reviewed article in the journal American Family Physician. He is a member of the Alpha Omega Alpha Medical Honor Society and in 2018 was awarded Fellow of the American Academy of Family Physicians. Tim, thank you for coming back on the podcast. The information you discussed regarding testing for COVID and antibodies on our weekly update was really helpful, and I'm looking forward to the chance to dive into a few more topics with you. Thanks for having me on again, Ted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So I'd like to pick up where we left off and talk about antibody testing. There are a few terms that I want to make sure everyone understands and so can you explain the idea of seroprevalence and confirmed cases? Sure. So seroprevalence is the number of people in a population that test positive for an antibody. And this indicates that that person has had the disease in the past. Confirmed cases are when a patient comes to a doctor, the doctor suspects they have a disease, they do a test and it confirms that they have that disease, they become a confirmed case. There are two very separate and uh, important distinctions to make between the two. Uh, Seroprevalence gives you a better idea of how many people have the disease in your population versus just the sick ones that go see their doctor. Excellent. Um, So there have been several studies done recently in Santa Clara, in Los Angeles, and in New York, looking at the number of people who may have already had COVID-19. Can you tell us what those studies have shown? Again, seroprevalence thus far has only been testing and focusing on the sick and hospitalized patients. But what they did in these studies that we'll talk about is they tested for how many people have had the disease that may not have known they've had the disease. So the first was out of Stanford University in Santa Clara, California. They looked at 3,300 patients and they estimated that about 25 to 4% already had COVID-19 which is about 50 to 80 times more common than we thought. This study was met with heavy criticism and outright dismissal as being too small, the test was not accurate enough, and the sample, the sample that they took was not random. A little bit later, a few weeks later, USC and LA County Public Health published a study with about 863 adults, and they came up with an estimate of about 2.8 to 5.6% of the population already having COVID-19, which is about 28 to 55 times more common than we thought. This was also criticized. A little bit later, New York did a study with 3,000 patients and then later 7,500 patients. 
And what they discovered was pretty interesting. About 24% people in New York City may have had the disease. And for the New York State, it was about 15%. So much more common than what we thought initially. Yeah, no, absolutely. So what are the take-home messages based on, on this data that's coming out of these studies? Uh, there are a few. Um, first is many people have already had the disease and didn't know about it, or they thought they had a cold. Next, with more data, we're going to get a much more accurate picture of uh, this disease. Also, probably most importantly, there's probably a lot lower mortality than what we thought initially. When the disease was first starting to spread, uh, it was estimated that about 2 to 4% of people would die from it. As we calculate mortality, we've only been including the sickest patients, uh, and only these were the ones that were getting tested. And again, the sickest patients are more likely to include those who die, but leave, this leaves out all the asymptomatic patients that had mild disease. So as we get a more comprehensive view of this disease, I'm confident that the mortality rate is going to be much lower, maybe as low as 1% or even less. Lastly, I've found that uh, this is becoming a pretty politically divisive issue. Uh, heavy accusations were thrown at the scientists who were doing these studies and trying to help us fight this pandemic. Yeah, and it, the data is also showing that seroprevalence, as you said, is is much higher in New York than it is in California, which makes sense given what we've seen with the healthcare workforce and the hospitals being overwhelmed. There's just more people in that area that seem to have it, correct? Absolutely. So the, the World Health Organization is also called the WHO recently said that having COVID-19 may not prevent a second infection. Can you explain this for us? Absolutely. So um, this got a lot of media attention as soon as they said it. Uh, and the quote thrown around is, uh, quote, there is currently no evidence that people who have recovered from COVID-19 and have antibodies are protected from a second infection. Um, this caused a lot of uh, panic and hysteria, I think rightly so. Uh, there is some evidence uh, against this statement, and I think uh, we should go through a little bit of it. People's immune systems are exactly the reason that they recovered. Uh, immunity to COVID-19 absolutely exists. Again, we shouldn't abandon the more, than 100, the more than 100 years of immunology and virology. We have significant knowledge of this virus specifically, its genetic sequence, the receptor it uses, how it replicates, etc., and we have an understanding about how immune systems, how immune systems respond to viral infections. Uh, when we're faced with any new problem, we don't start from an empty slate and reinvent the wheel. We have compared this to the previous SARS coronavirus, which is very similar. We now know that's about 90% identical. We have pretty good data about how the immunity starts and how long it lasts with that virus. We can take blood from a recovered person, give it to someone who's not sick, and they get better. And it's exactly these antibodies that are at work. We can measure both antibody levels, called titers, and demonstrate how well they work against the virus in what are called neutralizing studies. We have the technology to do this. Prior to transfusing plasma, which we can get to later, this is the test that is done to confirm that the donor is appropriate. Lastly, if the WHO is correct that there isn't immunity, uh, this would mean that working towards a vaccine would be futile. If antibodies don't protect a person, there's no point in developing a vaccine, uh, and there's really no hope of herd immunity. So 
I think we should uh, kind of take uh, words from authority figures uh, with a little bit of grain of salt and, and keep our eyes open to what we actually know. So do you think the WHO is simply being cautious or is there any evidence that people are actually getting infected a second time? Um, good. Let me unpack that one. I, I think we should be cautious, first of all. I think people are depending on us to be rational and measured. Uh, there's a difference between being cautious and being overly pessimistic. And a good example is a parent steps on a Lego, which I don't know if, as a, if you've ever done that, but it's quite painful. I think Lego should be outlawed under the Geneva Convention myself. But they go to see their doctor who notices a small scratch on their foot. Now, if the doctor says it broke the skin, making you more prone to an infection, I can't tell you the infection won't spread, uh, leading to amputation, sepsis, kidney damage, and death. Well, that statement might be technically 100% accurate, but it's pessimistic. It's pure pessimism. Being cautious would be more like keep your foot clean, keep it covered, use antibiotic ointment, come see me if it gets red, swollen, warm, or painful, or if you have a fever. But here's why I think the distinction is important. During any crisis, we need to set an example that informing people and preparing them is a priority causing fear, panic, and hysteria is counterproductive and I think harmful. Um, there's already paranoia and distrust out there and we don't need to add to it. Now, I don't think it's the WHO's intent to be pessimistic, but it was certainly the outcome. And it's a hard thing to unring a bell. We know this with our previous experience with vaccines and autism. It took us a decade to convince people that this wasn't the case. Uh, the headlines were WHO warns no evidence of coronavirus immunity. Someone with not, with not a lot of health literacy would take this and be quite concerned. Persons who are confined to their home and afraid, I think, would suffer needlessly. Patients afraid to leave their home would then cause people to delay seeking medical attention for non-COVID-related illnesses. So if they're having chest pain or a heart attack or stroke, they're worried about going to the ER because they don't want to get COVID-19. The issue of the second infection, I think, is worth a little bit of attention. So in China, Japan, South Korea, there were some cases of patients that tested negative and then later positive. I think South Korea has the best documentation from what I've read so far. So you had a patient that was ill, they tested positive, they later tested negative and then tested positive again. This doesn't mean that they were infected a second time, now, again, these cases were extremely rare, statistically negligible out of the 3.4 million people infected right now. Of those that tested positive again, they weren't typically sick a second time. That's important. They didn't transmit the disease to other people around them, including family members. And most of them, when they cultured, did not have active virus. A lot of things can explain this. Most easily would be uh, an explanation of lab error. We don't consider someone negative in the U.S. without two separate tests done on at least 24 hours apart. The test looks for the presence of RNA, but it doesn't tell you if you're actively infected. Some people shed the virus, the virus particles, for many weeks after they've recovered. People respond differently to the virus. And lastly, we also know that cells in the respiratory tract stay alive for several months, about three to six months. So my cautious alternative statement would have been, 
People getting multiple infections back to back is very unlikely. I don't expect it to happen to an individual. We'll keep studying this as time goes on. And with time, we'll have a more exact picture of how long this immunity lasts. That's a great way to frame it. You should probably be writing the press releases for the WHO. They know where to find me. (laughs) Um, So, Tim, I covered the medications called ACE inhibitors and angiotensin receptor blockers, also called ARBs, in one of the early weekly updates. And there's been additional research since that time. Can you take us through what the most recent research has shown about these medications and and risk of getting COVID-19 or even getting more serious infection? Yeah, absolutely. So ACE inhibitors and ARBs, these are medications that we commonly use to treat high blood pressure, uh, congestive heart failure, coronary artery disease, and patients with diabetes can actually protect their kidneys from damage. And in fact, the benefit is so well established that they're considered first line. Early on, it was noted that these same patients were at high risk for severe COVID illness. This coronavirus, like the previous SARS coronavirus, uses the ACE2 receptor to enter cells, particularly in the respiratory tract. ACE and ARBs medications upregulate this receptor, meaning your body makes more of those receptors. There is a Lancet article posted early on that positive that patients taking these medications may be more vulnerable to COVID-19. Uh, But correlation is not evidence of causation, as many people know. Patients taking these medications have diseases that make them more vulnerable or more prone to severe disease. Uh, April 23rd, the American Heart Association Journal Circulation, uh, the article noted that patients on these medications had a lower mortality than those who were not. A similar article the same day in the JAMA, which is Journal of American Medical Association, noted that uh, patients taking these medications was not associated with disease progression or death. Right. Thank you for breaking that down for us. And I think it's important to emphasize that that first mention in The Lancet was really talking about it from a theoretical standpoint and not really based on any evidence. Yeah. Um, So based on all of this and what you just broke down for us, what are the major medical societies recommending and what are you telling your patients? The main recommendations and what I'm telling my patients are today, uh, if you're taking these medications, definitely continue them unless your doctor finds a reason for you not to be on them. They're considered first line, uh, and many patients, if they're not on that, they should have a pretty good reason why they're not. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist Podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes! Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes... Yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. Absolutely. Um, so, Tim, there's been a lot of research on hydroxychloroquine as a medication to potentially prevent getting COVID-19 and also for treating more severe cases. Uh, and this includes a, a larger United States VA hospital study. 
Can you take us through what we currently know about hydroxychloroquine, especially since it's been getting so much attention in the press over the last few weeks? Absolutely. Uh, the VA study also got a lot of attention. Um, I think it's probably a good idea for to explain uh, to your listeners uh, what we consider a good quality study, what we look for. Uh, you and I have both reviewed papers submitted for publication, but maybe your audience might benefit from knowing um, a little bit of health science literacy, what we look for. Uh, when we're when we're looking at a study to decide whether or not it's something we should um, take into consideration when treating patients, maybe dig deeper for yourself. So there's a couple things that we look at. One is uh, how large was the study? Was it a large scale? Because more data gives us more accurate pictures. Was it prospective? Meaning, did they design the study, set up a hypothesis? Did they? Um, is it designed to get more accurate data and remove potential bias? Was it randomized? Meaning, uh, did someone decide who got the medication and who didn't, or was it random? Double blind is an important thing, meaning both the observer and the patient don't know they're getting a medication. Was it controlled, usually with the placebo? Was it peer-reviewed? Was it reproducible by others, meaning did they note all their math? Did they provide the dosages of medications? Uh, And lastly, was there lack of industry bias? So with the VA study in particular... Uh, they it was a pretty decent sized study. It was uh, 368 people, primarily only looked at older men, uh, median age greater than 65. They're primarily African American. Uh, in this case, women were excluded. It was a retrospective study, meaning they looked back through charts. It wasn't randomized. So in this case, only the sickest patients were given hydroxychloroquine or hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin, which is an antibiotic. Um, and these patients tended to be the sickest. They had heart disease, lung disease, liver, kidney disease, uh, cancer, HIV. Uh, and we also know they were th- the sickest patients by the labs and their vital signs. Um, and some were already on a ventilator. But if you select out only those with severe disease, you're going to get the worst outcomes. It's a little bit more difficult to attribute uh, the outcomes to the medications. And this is something called selection bias. With a retrospective study, it's impossible to blind it. So both the observer and the patient know that they're getting the medication. There wasn't a placebo control. And in fact, uh, some of the untreated patients were uh, received uh, azithromycin, which is one of the, the treatments that we're now using uh, in the initial phases of this. It wasn't peer-reviewed. It was uh, published on the internet. Um, and uh, as far as industry bias, there's I let people draw their own conclusions. There may be, or may or may not be, some suggestion of that. With uh, uh, one of the author, one of the authors is uh, has a patent on a COVID treatment. Uh, another author uh, received funding from one of the uh, pharmaceutical companies making uh, a competing drug, Remdesivir, which is coming out pretty soon. Um, which I hope, honestly, a Remdesivir works pretty well. Um, but you got to contrast this with the head the headlines: malaria drug leads to more deaths in VA study. Hydroxychloroquine doesn't work, increases mortality in VA study. VA study finds no benefit and a higher death rate. So I, I, I don't know that those conclusions can necessarily be uh, achieved uh, through that study alone. Hydroxychloroquine, uh, it's still pretty early. Um, it probably only works best uh, given in the early stages. It may need be, to be given with zinc. If you're a hospitalized patient and receiving it, you probably need EKG screening 
for certain cardiac abnormalities that can happen, although they're rare. Um, and especially if you're taking it with, if you take hydroxychloroquine with azithromycin, they both do the same thing with the heart in prolonging uh, the electricity that moves through your heart. Uh, and you need to be monitored pretty closely. And giving the two together, uh, some um, guidelines recommend not using both together. So it's still in its early phases. Um, I hope it works, uh, but we'll see. Yes, and I, I think as as you break that down for us, it, it just shows how much more research needs to be done on all of these potential therapies for for COVID nineteen. It's you know, it's absolutely we're trying to find treatments that work and that are reasonably safe, and the research is coming fast and furious. Yeah, but the quality of the research needs to be there, and and we need to you know time to be able to do to do that and do more research. Yeah. And your skill as an educator, Tim, comes through loud and clear as you as you break these down for us. Thanks. Earlier on, you mentioned the topic of convalescent plasma, and, and this topic's gotten a lot of attention recently in the media. Um, can you tell us what exactly convalescent plasma means? Yeah, so convalescent plasma therapy. Um, well, first of all, plasma is um, pretty easily explainable. If you take a test tube of blood that was drawn from someone, uh, and you leave it there for a few minutes, it starts to layer out as cells fall to the bottom. And on the top, there is a liquid, uh, and that liquid is called plasma. It contains the proteins in the blood, including antibodies. Convalescent plasma therapy is more than a century old. Uh, in fact, it was used before the invention of antibiotics. Based on the theory of humoral immunity that can be transferred from one person to another, uh, the word humoral is a reference to the ancient philosophy by Greeks that there were four humors, blood, black bile, yellow bile, phlegm. Uh, but we now know that it is the antibodies that are the primary reason for this. Uh, the other type of immunity, then humoral immunity, is cellular immunity, which is the other, the other way that we fight diseases, uh, especially infectious disease. Uh, but in this case, the cells are removed and we just give the patient uh, the, the plasma. In practice, a patient who is adequately recovered from COVID-19, uh, by ad adequately recovered, we mean they it's been 14 days since the onset that they've been sick. They haven't had a fever for three days without taking medications to reduce their temperature. Their symptoms have resolved and they test negative uh, for the virus. That person donates blood. The blood is then screened for those antibodies that we talked about that can attack the coronavirus, and then a small amount is transfused to a sick patient. Small amount meaning 200 milliliters, which is about the size of a juice box. Excellent. So what have we seen so far with people who've been treated with convalescent plasma? Um, the published studies have been small so far, though it's, it's being used a lot right now. Uh, but very commonly, patients, uh, they improve, even very, very sick patients. Uh, within two or three days, uh, their symptoms improve, including fever, cough, shortness of breath. Um, they have lab improvement. Uh, after seven days, it appears that many patients have the virus cleared from their body, and the CAT scans of their lungs have also improved. Many major, major uh, medical centers are using this, uh, and it's being studied extensively. Uh, it might even benefit patients uh, or people in preventing the illness and people who have been exposed, uh, which is what we call prophylaxis. Um, one person donating blood can uh, actually save two to three people. 
So um, many uh, universities, medical centers, and American Red Cross uh, are now accepting donations if people want to help out. Excellent. That's a good reminder to for everybody to think about, you know, even if it's not for convalescent plasma to consider donating blood. And certainly if you've had the COVID-19 and recovered from it to consider doing that, you may save a couple of lives very directly by doing that. Tim, we've covered a lot of topics here, and I think you've made some complex information much more digestible. Is there anything aside from what we've talked about here that you want the audience to know about? Yeah. Um, one is emergency rooms, at least in areas not in New York City, uh, are not overrun right now. Um, and they're not uh, wall-to-wall packed with uh, COVID patients who are going to infect you if you go there. If you have chest pain or stroke symptoms, you broke your arm, go to the hospital, please. Uh, there's no reason to delay care. Uh, there's no reason that all the things that happened be- before COVID-19 uh, aren't continuing to, to occur, and people should still seek medical attention if you need it. Yes, we don't want to have, a, have bad outcomes for other disease processes because of fear of getting COVID. The emergency departments are able to reasonably protect you when you come in and, you know, we don't want them to get overrun. But if you have health concerns, yeah, do seek the care. And, and I would say even call your primary care physician before going to the emergency department because they may have other ways to potentially treat you, right? For sure. For sure. We're doing a lot over the phone right now, which yes. is great. Yeah. So, Tim, uh, we've been trying to do our part to support small businesses and and restaurants and things like that in our local communities, knowing how much uh, of a hit the economy has taken and and the people who own these small businesses and and the people who work for them are are really having a hard time. So I want to give you the chance, um, if there are any small businesses in your community that you want to give a shout out to so that um, we can try to give them a little bump in their business. Yeah, thank you. Uh, in my hometown of Newbury Park, California, there's a martial arts studio, Ice Urban Combat Martial Arts. It's a family-run business with uh, currently two brothers, Brandon and Jared Schmelter, who are the lead instructors. Students as young as four years all the way up to adults are provided with classes several times per week. It's a good emphasis on learning only practical skills to protect yourself and others, as well as conflict de-escalation. My youngest son has been training there for several years. My wife and I started training about a year and a half ago. Uh, it's an amazing workout. And the instructors uh, are supportive, approachable, very knowledgeable. During this COVID emergency, they've continued to provide instruction uh, via live video to keep our kids active, healthy, and in a routine, which is really important right now. Their website, uh, fightwithice.com, has a good description of their courses, some videos. And if you're in Northern California, uh, like you, Ted, there are seminars available up in Sacramento. Uh, I'd like to thank them for their service uh, that they're providing our community to keep us both safe and healthy. Great. Thank you for giving them that that bump. And uh, we'll make sure that their website lands in, in the show notes. And, and it's really great that they're continuing to do that via video to keep the kids active. And it's important for kids who aren't able to go to school right now to have the physical activity and have the structure, as you mentioned. Yeah. So, Tim, I want to thank you for rejoining us on the show. We got great feedback uh, when you helped me with one of the weekly updates, and you did a great job again with taking some complex topics, as I mentioned, and making them um, very understandable. So thank you on behalf of the podcast and our audience for sharing your expertise. 
Thanks for having me. This is fun. Absolutely, Tim. Stay safe, okay? You too. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.